Nathaniel, come on up here, man. So uh, we're going to be led by the Spirit a little bit this morning. I've, I've just had uh, an outline passed out for you. We may or may not actually move through the outline, but I wanted to give the outline as a, a, another tool that you can take home, you can study from, and you can look into these things. Because one of the, the main reasons that uh, we wanted to address these issues right now is because there's such a lack of clarity. And so many voices proclaiming so many different things. I wanted to just give a clear, uh, hopefully clear uh, explanation from the scriptures as to what the Bible says in, in regard to um, homosexuality, gay marriage, and, and, and these issues. And and so the, the outline is there, and, and we may work through, we may not. And what I'd like to do is let's have a word of prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak, and then uh, I'll make a few s- statements. And then, and then Nathaniel and I are going to try to tag team this morning. This is going to be fun. So good. Lord, let's pray. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so, Lord, I'm asking right now, you would set all of our hearts at attention. I I bring this room under the authority of the Holy Spirit right now. And I say, Lord, release the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I ask for clarity on our hearts and minds. I ask for Nathaniel and I both. Let us speak as an oracle of God. Stand with us here, Jesus. Hold our hand. We desire to worship you and honor you in all we say. We love you, Lord. Come, direct our hearts into the love of God and release truth. In the name of Jesus, everyone said amen. 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 Well, good. So as I said, we're on our third part of a series where we've been talking about how Christians should respond to uh, the issues of homosexuality and, and, and gay marriage. And I just want to admonish us for a moment. You know, the last two weeks I've, I've shared these points, but I want to reaffirm them. That uh, I think there's a major responsibility on behalf of uh, Christians to handle uh, people that are uh, in a homosexual lifestyle or struggling with same-sex attraction, to handle them with compassion and mercy and kindness. I think that much of the way the church has dealt with this issue and dealt with individuals who are, uh, you know, identified as as homosexual or gay, I think much of the way the church has has gone about this has just been horrible. And, uh, you know, I've been bold about saying that and calling the church to uh, the nature of Jesus, the nature of Christ, and the example that continuously comes to my mind is this. When you see Jesus dealing with the woman caught in adultery in the Scripture, you don't see him berating her with the rest of the Pharisees. What you see is uh, Jesus dealing with her in tenderness and compassion. And, and you know, just an just a, uh, interpretive point is she's caught in adultery the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles is a depiction of the marriage between uh, uh, God and His people. 
tabernacling together is the picture of God and his people having union. She's caught in adultery on the, on the day that celebrates the union between us and God. She's caught in adultery in, you know, right in the face of that, that feast. And what do we see Jesus do? Instead of joining the ranks of those that are assailing her, we see Jesus get in the dirt, have compassion on her, and call her up out of her sin. And beloved, that is, that is a testimony and an example to all of us as to how we're supposed to deal with uh, people that are dealing with homosexuality, but people in sin in general. And, and that's just a critical point, that there must be compassion and mercy at the same time as boldness and taking a firm stand and, and, and identifying with the Scripture and what the Bible says about sin and calling people out of it. And so I'm, I'm heavy on this point because I think half of the challenge right now is that the church has been so mean-spirited that people that are uh, in the gay lifestyle just can't hear us. You know, the scripture says uh, a brother offended is harder to win than a walled city. And we have to take ownership of the fact that we've offended people by not acting like Jesus. If we're going to speak truth, amen. If we're going to speak truth, truth must be spoken in love. And, and love is patient. Love is kind. Now, I will say this. There's a redefinition of love happening. And love will stand behind somebody and support them and stand in front of somebody and oppose them. Love does both. Love isn't just this syrupy affirmation. Love encourages people forward and stands in front of them when they're doing something destructive and says, don't, don't. And so we have to embrace the, that, that biblical value of love in all of our, our actions. And so I just wanted to preface anything we're going to say now with that lens. Good, dude. I am so, I'm so blessed that you're here with us. I'm blessed. I mean, Nathaniel and Tiffany, y'all are obviously part of our family still. I mean, you're helping sure. plant churches and doing all sorts of stuff. And your ministry is, you know, taking on an interesting trajectory, an awesome trajectory right now. But uh, these guys are family to us. And I just, what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to do an interview-ish format by the Holy Spirit. Y'all can be praying for us that we're not awkward. But uh, This is unrehearsed. Unrehearsed, fully led by the Spirit here, hopefully. So um, I want you just to kind of begin to tell us a little of your story. Just tell us, you know, at whatever level you want, your background, and kind of the journey God has begun to, you know, take you, God began to take you through and and ultimately, we're going to get to the end of that and where we're at today. Sure. And I'm going to interject probably some other stuff as, okay. as we go. But. Yeah, so even in, in light of what we're, what we're going to share, I just want to preface also that um, I don't get a movie deal out of this. I don't get a book deal. I didn't offer me money to come speak to just You're getting firm. the same honorarium that I'm getting. Yeah. Zero point zero. So, this, so anyone who may be listening online to, to this, they know that this, is not, this isn't about money. This isn't about anything. This is about... Letting the truth be told so that Jesus can have the reward of his sufferings yeah. and so that hearts can be set free and we can get back to the plumb line of scripture. And so, um, so I grew up in a Christian family, and which was awesome. My dad tried to teach me about spiritual warfare when I was a kid. 
Um, obviously, I liked Nintendo way better. So when he's trying to explain like demonic warfare and casting demons out, it sounded like a video game. But like most kids, I wanted the uh, applicable, tangible representation. I didn't necessarily want to hear about it. I wanted to see it. So uh, I tr- I, he planted seeds. It was good. I received those things. And that was laying a foundation for me, which was going to be very important when I veered off course. Um, the Lord laid that foundation through my dad and my mom. And uh, just some crazy stuff happened growing up that sh- proved to me that the name of Jesus was powerful, that he really was God, and that kept me and secured me uh, through my middle school and high school years. Uh, I remember the first homosexual thought I had. I was about three years old, and I was just playing with my Star Wars figurines, and all of a sudden the most graphic, explicit thought came into my head, and I won't share it because it's that explicit. But I had, was not uh, introduced to pornography. I was not molested. It was demonic influence going into my mind. At the time, I thought, you know, when I was going through the homosexual lifestyle, I was like, oh, I was born gay. I remember my first thought. What happened was uh, a seed was planted, and I didn't know to talk to my parents about it so that they could pull it out. And with it came this kind of secrecy, this, you need to keep this a secret. You need, this needs to be, you know, it, it was so subtle, but it was enough to keep me from speaking up to my parents. So later on, a few rejections from females later in elementary school, some Valentine's boxes that weren't delivered properly, and some heartbreak that happened as a young child. I think it was the catalyst to begin to accelerate that, that seed that was already planted. Um, My dad was in the Air Force and worked a civilian job. I didn't see him a whole lot, and he was just burnt out tired when he got home. And I lean more on the side of artistic, emotional male side, like the 3% of society, which needs a lot of male affirmation and affection. And I wasn't able to get that from my dad so much. And so these, th- these facets were beginning to feed that process. By middle school, I was fully certain I was homosexual, but I was terrified because all I heard about homosexuality was that it was an abomination it was wrong, and God did not like homosexuals. Can we pause right there? You, you, you're saying that you needed uh, male affirmation because you're, you know, this word orientation is used a lot in this, in this conversation, mm-hmm. but you're saying you're orienting from a more sensitive male side, a more artistic male side, and this, I think, is pertinent. What's your dad's background? Um, he's in the Air Force. Military. Yeah. So your dad's a man's man. Yes. You know, jump how high, sir, stuff like that. Yes. And you have a creative bent, an artistic bent, a sensitive bent, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, how was you guys' relationship? I mean, could y'all find each other emotionally? I mean, I want to honor your father. But yeah, you know. he's, he's an awesome man of God. Uh, he's a prayer warrior. But we're very, very different personality-wise. We did not have any common ground. I had no interest in football whatsoever. Um, it was horrifying to sit on the couch and watch it as a child. Um, I was like, give me some paint, give me some, I don't know, something artistic or creative to do. And my dad was just like locked in, yelling at the TV. And I was like, I just don't get this. I, I, I can't invest my emotions in this right now. And uh, Well, and the... Which I think is awesome because it's such a clear point because often you'll hear, ever since I was young, I dot, dot, dot. Exactly. I think a lot of times it's what you're describing, a a sensitive makeup or a creative makeup that ends up being misunderstood and then perverted. That's right. That's right. So I'm terrified that God is going to kill me. Um, I was also terrified by the 
left behind pre-trib stuff at any moment. Because you came out of a pretty intense fundamentalist kind of church. like Yeah, yeah. So I thought either God was going to kill me in my sleep or I was going to wake up. My parents were going to be there in the morning. So my middle school years were <laughs> a little awkward. I didn't sleep a whole lot. Um, that probably didn't help anything. But um, after my parents weren't raptured um, and after God did not kill me in my sleep, um, I realized, well, maybe, maybe he's okay with this. Um, and so I continued that lifestyle of just kind of keeping it a secret and not really openly sharing anything, not even with my parents, even though I could trust them. There's this whole secrecy thing around it so that it can incubate and grow. And when you don't bring things out to the light, it's, it's, it's the scheme of darkness. If you can keep something hidden long enough, it's hard to uproot it. It becomes a mentality, a lifestyle, and a paradigm. And so that's what was happening. Though I could trust my parents, something was keeping me from sharing with them what I was going through. So I'm now in high school, and I am now starting to really experiment. And um, I was 14 at, uh, when I had my first real uh, sexual relation with a man, and he was around 50 years old. And... Uh, that was my first encounter with really the homosexual lifestyle in that measure. And from that point on, I was so confused about what, because actually the homosexual community has different cliques. Um, at the time, you know, there would be like what we called the queens, and they would all sit on like the street corner of the gay bookstore and act really effeminate and shout at cars going by and act really dramatic and strut down the sidewalk. And, and so, but they loved me and they accepted me as who I who I was. But then there was the older guys, and they were a little bit more intellectual, and, and so I would talk with them, and I liked t- going deep in conversation. And then there was the clubbers, you know, the guys who are, do, live for the weekends. And so I was going into the, these different cliques, trying to find where I belong. And I would go to these gay pride events, and I was a little confused initially because I I heard everyone saying, we're just like everyone else. We're just like everyone else. Equality and now keep in mind, I at this time was like celebrating my sexuality. And, uh, but I was still confused on if we're, if we're just like everyone else, then why are we celebrating how different we are? And then if we're just like everyone else, then why are we walking down the street wearing leather chaps and no underwear and we think we're, we're family friendly? And we're appalled that families wouldn't want us in their home. And even when I was in the pride lifestyle and I was still celebrating my sexuality, I was confused. And if I brought it up, uh, the response was very antagonistic. And so I'd just be like, okay, well, I'm going back over the rain, under the rainbow and I'm just going to dance under here and be, be quiet because it, the contradiction is there, but no one wants to talk about it in the community. And so I just kind of kept silent after that and was like, well, whatever, I'll just, so I'm living in a contradiction, who cares? And so I go into uh, my DJing career which uh, was not very profitable at the beginning, but I was getting a lot of attention and affirmation and free drugs. And, and this so, is in a club scene? This is in the club scene in Atlanta, yeah. The clubs and the raves that were going on um, in like 2001, 2002. And the, I was noticing that the DJ gigs were kind of dead-end streets for the electronica sound, not like hip-hop and R&B. Atlanta's a great city for that. But if you're more into, like, the international club music, uh, like trance and house, that sound is more better to be launched in, like, Miami, New York, Los Angeles. So I met this guy, and he wanted to manage my career. And so we moved down to South Florida, and we were going to start, you know, really trying to become an international sensation. And that was actually the beginning of the two worst years of my life. 
I missed a whole bunch of stuff that happened in Atlanta, but just for the sake of time, I want to get to the point. So uh, the Lord basically removes every comfort from me during that two-year season so that I get taken to the end of myself pretty quickly. And two years seems like a, a long time to people who are in their teens, but now two years is like nothing. Um, but two years, the Lord stripped me of all my comforts, and at the end of the two years, uh, I was in such a depression that I was selling my body for drugs. And I knew this was not the Lord's plan for me. I, it, just that realization after the fact, you're, you've been with somebody, you're still feeling the buzz from the drugs, and you're just like, what am I doing with my life? This is not how my parents raised me. They would be appalled if they knew what I was doing. And the Lord over a series of days, began to deliver me from drug addiction. He delivered me from drug addiction in one moment. The presence of God fell on me, and I never touched anything again after that. A week later, yeah, praise him. A week later, I'd been having night terrors, like every night for months and months and months. And if you know anything about night terrors, they're worse than nightmares. They're so crippling that when you wake up, you can barely move. The oppression is so heavy on your body that, and the depression that you're not able to function in the morning. And my only way to get up was to smoke weed. That was the only way that I could get out of it. And since I'd been delivered from drug addiction, I spent a whole week wrestling with these night terrors without drugs. And uh, a week after that, the deliverance from drug addiction, the Lord came to me in a dream. And I was in a, a fortress, uh, like a stronghold, and there was water that was beginning to fill the floor, and it was rising up my ankles and up to my knees and to my waist, and soon I couldn't feel. My, my feet weren't touching the floor anymore. And the snake, this massive snake, began to wrap itself around me and try and pull me under the water. And I could not stay above water. And every time I'd bob my head up, I could see a cross on a distant wall. And I, when I saw the cross, I wasn't thinking Jesus or crucifixion. I just wanted to touch the cross. And as long as I kept my eye on the cross, I had power to overcome the water and the snake. And so I just kept my eye on it, and I managed to swim to it. And as soon as I touched it, for the first time ever in my sleep life, I remembered I could pray to God. That was never an option in these night terrors. I, could, I never remembered. I could just pray to Jesus. He's always saved me. And so I said, Jesus, save me. And as soon as I said that, the water and the snake disappeared. And when I woke up, I didn't even recognize my condo. It was like I was in a completely different world. And I felt like I was seeing right side up for the first time. I was a little terrified because I I felt like I was in an unfamiliar place. The Lord began to speak, like boom into my spirit. I didn't hear him audibly, but it was very, very loud in my spirit. And he told me to leave South Florida, to go back to my parents' house in Atlanta. And so a few weeks passed. I I learned a lot. Um, I had to wait three weeks to leave South Florida, but what the Lord was showing me was I was in my, I was still in Egypt, but I had no desire to still be under slavery. I was completely changed. He didn't need to remove me from my Egypt to show me that I was free. He showed me I was free by leaving me there for three weeks. Same street corners that I would, you know, hook up with guys, same houses, same phone numbers. I had three weeks to stay in Egypt, and and decide what I was going to do. And I had no desire to, to be a part of that lifestyle anymore. I have a question. This is powerful. So leading up to the dream, leading up to the, the deliverance from drugs, mm-hmm. leading up to the dream where you cry out to Jesus and you feel delivered. I mean, is there, is there something stirring in your heart? I mean, are you, is there a recognition like, man, I'm a mess. I mean, I need help. Or I mean, what, 
how does that work exactly? Because, I mean, it's probably not likely you woke up one day loving drugs and you woke up the next day going, I hate this. I mean, how did that work exactly for you? You mean getting to that place? Yeah. Yeah, it was just one bad choice after another. And then every time the Lord would break in in mercy and start pulling me back to him. So you were recognizing the activity of God over a period of time. Absolutely. And I was keeping a dialogue with the Lord. You know, about six months, eight months before I had this encounter with the Lord, I had a very dramatic encounter that was followed by this wave of demonic temptation that just overwhelmed me. And that's what thrust me into selling myself for drugs. I mean, it was uh, every time the Lord would would begin to draw me and kiss me with his love, this demonic standard would be raised up and draw me right back in. I guess the point I'm trying to make is, to the, you know, to, the, to the naked eye, you look like somebody who's just going off the deep end, partying your life away, fully immersed in homosexuality, mm-hmm. but internally there's this activity of the Spirit going on. You're, you've got a, you know, a semblance of a prayer life happening, and God's actually dealing with you. My point becomes, you never know where anyone is. You just never know what's going on in somebody. Everybody has a story, and the Lord can be working in dramatic ways even when the exterior looks completely not like he's working. That's right. And little seeds were sown. No one was evangelizing me. No one was mentoring me or or anything. This was all between me and the Lord. Me and my, my junk, my filth, I was in. The Lord was constantly drawing me and drawing me. He was not staying silent, even in my sin and my brokenness and my desire to be free, my desire to know truth, which I think most people want to know truth. And so he was still honoring that, that, that simple desire. So I, I leave South Florida, which was a whole miraculous story in, its, in itself. I get back to Atlanta, and for two months, the Lord totally romances me, just woos my heart, and I'm just so overwhelmed with his love and his presence. Everything that I had wanted with drugs, I was getting on a daily basis free from him just by being loved by him. And it came to July of 2004, and the Lord began... Now, keep in mind, no one, no one was sowing seeds of, you really need to renounce homosexuality. You really need to, you know, that's not right. No one was talking to me about it. That was the Lord letting him have his time with me. Um, my parents didn't say anything. They're like, just let Jesus disciple him. You know, we don't want to offend. He's fresh out of this lifestyle of hurt and pain and misery. Um, so they, they were comforting. They were, affer- they were loving. But they let God really speak into me because, obviously, you know, I had been hurt by the church too. I was angry. I was livid. Um, I was indignant. And so everyone was kind of keeping a distance in that sense to let God be God. And now this is just my personal story. I'm not saying don't, don't associate. Because it may be different exactly. depending on the individual. This is just my story so that no one can say I was brainwashed, okay? So I get to July, and it's right around my birthday. And the, the, um, it was actually right after my birthday. I was at a youth uh, service. And the pastor is preaching on following God. He's not talking about homosexuality, sexual immorality, anything. He's just saying, if you're going to follow God, you have to leave things behind. You have to follow him according to his standards, according to his desires. If you're going to follow him, you have to keep in line with his word. And the Holy Spirit says, if you're going to follow me, you have to renounce homosexuality tonight. And To your heart. He says that, he says that to my heart. No one else heard it. 
I'm terrified because this is pretty much all I'd known. It was comfortable. I didn't, identity for you at that point. It was identity, and I didn't want to be attracted to women. I liked being with men. I was very, very happy with that. I did not want to be attracted to women at all. So when the Lord says this to me, I'm like, <gasps> but there's two months of him loving me. I was like, how can I say no to him? He's incredible. He's wonderful. And two months of wooing me, and I was, I was ready to say yes. Now, it was actually in this room that I renounced homosexuality. Explain that, because we weren't here. We weren't here. This was owned by another church. This was the youth building. And I was sitting right over, I was kneeling on the floor right over there. And the stage was right there. And is this not crazy? And it was almost nine years to the day that I renounced it. Okay. <laughs> so my prayer son. The Lord is so, he's so poetic in he how he is. does stuff. I was just sitting there and it just dawned on me today that it was almost nine years to the day. I knew it was in this room, but I just, I hadn't put together. It's, oh my gosh, it's been almost nine years to the day. So uh, my prayer sounded a little bit like this. Oh, Lord, um, it, was, it was probably something like this. I, I, I really like being gay, and but if this is this is your best. Ugh. Then I renounce. Oh, I renounce homosexuality, and if you want me to be with a woman, oh, then then okay, uh, you can do whatever you want. It was something seriously just like that. As heartfelt as I could be, but I'd never heard of anyone being delivered from homosexuality. Actually, I heard of one, but I didn't believe it because he was at the time very effeminate, and I was like, that's a joke. Um, so I hadn't heard of any like real legitimate stories since that point. Not even a week later, I, all I could think about was getting married and having kids. I had no desire to be with a man at all. So, it was like, I was like... This getting is married the, to a woman and having kids is your point. Right, getting yeah. married to a woman and having kids. I mean, no desire is, to be with a man. When you, when you discuss this with someone who's gay, I mean, they will say, you can't any more change your sexual uh, orientation than you can change, you know, your gender or the fact that you've got a nose on your face. Right. No, and people say, I'm a liar, and that's fine, you know. I, this is the, the honest truth. I had no desire to be with a man at all at that point. And so I was kind of buzzing and excited, like, oh, this is what it feels like to be a straight man. And uh, <laughs> this is cool. I can go underwear shopping, and I'm not going to stumble. Like, this is just, like, awesome stuff. And um, so I'm, like, immediately, like, AOL chat room, going to find a wife. And the Lord's like, actually, turn your computer off. That's not how this is going to happen. And so... Um, he's like, it'll be... It, it's going to be a little while. And I was like, okay, two months? Cool. I can wait two months. And... Um, so after about three months, the Lord, uh, was then shifting things. And all of a sudden I began to have attraction to men again. And I was like, wait a minute, I didn't open any door. I've been looking at pornography. I'm not like, what, what just happened? Randomly end up in a barn in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. And Jamie Pridgen is there and he's talking about IHOP <laughs> and the 24 seven prayer movement. This is 2004 still. And I just feel led to go up to him and like, hey, I used to be gay, and now I'm starting to feel, and then I got delivered, and now I'm feeling gay again. What do you think that is? And uh, I didn't know him, and he was like, huh, uh, that's, pro- that's probably just Judges chapter 3, you know, when the Lord allowed enemy nations to come back so that the, the children of Israel would learn how to engage in warfare and fight. 
And I was like, oh, okay. And so um, it was just kind of like matter of fact, but in the moment it was just so real that the Lord was actually sharing that. So what I began to learn is, for example, when you look at Israel, when they go into the promised land, they had to go through that baptism. They had to walk through the waters. They had passed through the waters. There was a picture of the new covenant Christianity that Paul talks about in Colossians 2, that you've been received a circumcision not done with hands, but a circumcision done by the Lord. And you've gone through a baptism buried into his death. And so this picture of them crossing into the promised land, they go through the waters, and then they circumcise all the males. And what it is is a shedding off of the old man and putting on the new man. And so... The Lord plants me in the house of prayer just a few months after I meet with Jamie. And this is 2004. This is 2004, now 2005, January 2005. The Lord plants me here, and I do the first one thing internship that was offered here. It was a six-month internship. And the Lord began to teach me how to put on the new man and not live according to what my flesh says I am, but actually take the scripture and read it. And now this is nothing against homosexual deliverance groups, but that was not my journey. And I think the Lord has done my journey differently so that no one can say, well, you were just, what was the word, psychologically? Psychologically conditioned. Like, that's, the, that's one of the main things I'm hearing right now. It's like, you know, they're, they're like, you know, any ex-gay ministry is completely proven to be psychologically damaging. And I go, well, I happen to have probably 15 or 20 examples in my life and in our community of people that are delivered from homosexuality, and they go, oh, well, they're just repressing who they really are, and they were psychologically conditioned beforehand, so they had to, you know, that's why they had so much turmoil, and then they felt they had to renounce their true self. This is so damaging what you're doing. And I go, well, you don't know my friend Nathaniel. That's always my answer. I go, you have no idea. You, have, you do not know my friend Nathaniel, because that guy is not damaged. That dude is completely free. And I, But I, your testimony completely debunks that idea because exactly. it wasn't people slamming you over and over telling you to get, to get delivered. It was the Lord's moving on your heart. The Lord really hid me here. And I'm so thankful. You know, it was seven years to the day that I was here as on staff as a missionary. He just likes to do those to the day things with me. Um, but I, that internship, I went through so much healing and deliverance. And, and just in the place of prayer, it wasn't even necessarily anyone praying for me or telling me to renounce anything. Or it was, so if I was brainwashed, it was by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it was... Called, the, it's called being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That would by be the, the washing of the water term, yes. of the word. <laughs> that would be the true biblical term, yes. So I sat in the prayer room and I fasted and I prayed and I said, Okay, Lord... Um, I'm feeling like I want to go to Atlanta and hook up with a guy right now. What do you think about that? And he would just love me. And I was just very frank in prayer. I don't, I don't understand this. This is tormenting, Lord. Like, what happened to the three months that you let me just not have to deal with this? And meanwhile, there's voices saying, you're just repressing who you really are. I even had one person that I believe was sent by the Jezebel spirit to seduce me into believing a false doctrine and the Lord is so kind. Even after I slipped uh, and stumbled in that season, um, Billy restored me um, very gently. It was the Lord used Billy very gently to restore me and set me back on my feet. And again, Billy was not meddling. He wasn't indoctrinating me with his beliefs. He was just affirming me and giving me space in the prayer room to grow. And so I sat in the chair and I had my Bible in my lap 
And I wrestled through this for years. And I just fasted and I prayed. And, I, and it, it's not me. It's the grace of the Lord. I want to make that clear. It's not because I'm, I'm a super cool saint. I, I'm the weakest that a person that I know. I'm the most selfish person I know still. But is his grace that held me here and amazing partners who would sow into me so that I could be a missionary, so I could just sit here and let God do his work. And it was really hard some days when the turmoil on the inside, when all you want is to be with a man and you know it's wrong and it's raging in you and you just have to sit there in the chair and just cry because you feel alone. And then the Lord comes in and holds me and says, I'm going to be your father, and you don't have to do that. No person said a thing to me about that. It was the Lord loving me through that season. And when, as time went on, it just it got a little easier, and it got easier. And then I realized what it really was was my need for a father's love and masculine affection and Jesus and the father and the Holy Spirit completely satisfy that need in me so that on those days when I'm, when I'm struggling, you know, I have my wife pray for me, obviously, but if I'll just sit still and say, Lord, why am I feeling this draw? He'll come and love on me for about 60 seconds and it's completely gone. I'm not, I don't even have to rebuke it till I'm blue in the face. I don't have to stomp my foot and go, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. You know, it's, it's, it's just easy to just stop for a moment and let him love me. Because it's, it's just wounds that take years. It's trauma that takes years to heal. It takes time to get to that place of freedom. And the more that I abide in his love, the more that, that freedom gets a hold on me. You know, this point you're making right now is such a critical point. It's a critical point for Christians to understand, and it's a critical point for people that are trying to walk out of the lifestyle to understand and really walk out of any sin. You know, we love the testimony that, well, man, you got blasted that one time, totally free, and you walked away, and everything was different. We love that testimony, but can we just be real? That's hardly anybody's testimony. We love to pop, prop that testimony up, but let's talk about you and your testimony. Let's talk about my testimony. I mean, there's all sorts of times, no matter what the testimony is, you say yes to Jesus, and there's that moment where you go, man, everything looks different. I know he just did something dramatic in me. You have dramatic encounters with the Lord. And then there's those times where the old man and the sin nature is trying to beat you down back into submission to the things you were previously enslaved to. It's why Paul had the conversations with the Roman church. He goes, look, don't be enslaved to the thing that you were set free from. Don't go back under that yoke of slavery. If the point is, if there was no specter of that yoke coming on you, Paul wouldn't have ever had to address it. But we want this cookie cutter clean, boom, in one second it was done, and yay. But there is a human walking through a fight element that the Lord brings us through by the power of his love and his grace, and it works a root system in us that, I mean, we cannot comprehend. But I will say this, I will say this clearly. One of the biggest, you know, places where people stop on, on a journey like yours is they just go, I'm tired of fighting. 
tired of fighting. And there's just, there's that thing in you, Nathaniel. And I mean, it's the Lord. It's the grace of the Lord. Like you said, and you're the weakest guy ever. I feel the same. But in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. But it's just in that place of weakness, you just go help God. Help. And it's amazing how he brings ability when we are at the end of our ability and sees us through. And so, man, praise God for that. that you know, we want these, these perfectly clean testimonies. But you know what? We're all a work in process. We're all a work in process. And, man, we're leaning into righteousness. And, and that's why, man, when the church stands up in self-righteousness and sits there and contempt, condemns people, come on, man. I just sit there and go, come on, man. That's why Jesus looked at the Pharisees in the eye and said, if you were without sin, throw a stone. Do it. Because it's not real, bro. You're on a journey, too, just like anyone else. It's funny. You were talking about, you know, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of fighting. Which I've heard that from guys, and I'm working with You've them. You've heard that from me. Them. Yeah. <laughs> well. um, but others, too. I've heard that, that many times. It's a labor, and it's not forcing yourself to believe something that you're not. It's a labor to not let your flesh dictate who your renewed spirit is. It's allowing the, it's like Paul says in Romans 1, when he's talking about the issue of same-sex attraction and people who are delivered over to that debased mind, it's because they worship something created rather than the creator. They're worshiping their body and their emotions and exalting it as the dictator of their truth and their reality and their identity rather than letting the creator of the new man who's hidden under that, who needs to become now the top point, now that, that, that worship of that flesh is leading people into an, a debased mind. When we're worshiping how we feel or worshiping what arouses us in this body, we're serving something created. We're not serving the creator. And so that was the process the Lord was leading me out of because self-pity is the gatekeeper to homosexuality. It is, if you, if you, I noticed this a lot with activism and even what I played for years, it's this pity me, pity me, pity me. That's how the gay pride movement started. It's, and that, that spirit, I'll talk to guys who want out and they'll, They'll renounce it and nothing will happen. And then I'll, I'll hear them say things that, that are very like, oh, I'm just, I'm always fighting and blah. I'm like, ah, let's renounce self-pity right now and say whatever it takes to get to the destiny that God has prepared for me before time began, whatever it takes, if it means I have to fight every day for the rest of my life till I'm 99, I'm not going to let this abort my destiny and I say, so you have to renounce that self-pity right now and just determine right now. If you go into a battle wondering if you're going to win, you've already lost. You have to determine right now, are you going to win? And they're like, yes. Like, then renounce self-pity and the thing loses its stronghold on them. And so that was the process. It took years and I still battle with it. My wife, praise God for a patient wife. Um, she's like, hey, that's self-pity. I'm like, oh, right. Um, going to say goodbye to the gatekeeper again. Um, so I'm in the prayer room. This is four years in. I see this beautiful woman, and I hear the Lord say, that's your wife. And it was actually a Sunday night that Billy asked me to come up and share my testimony. So I go up on the platform, and then I see she's sitting next to a guy, and I'm like, oh, I must have not heard that one right. And she's just smiling at me and just beautiful, and I was like, but I hope I'm hearing the Lord right. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, a month later, 
I don't see her. And then a month later, she's doing the internship here at the House of Prayer. And I was helping lead the Night Watch internship at the time. So I got to see her a little bit, internship meetings. And she's like, I came out of the club scene. Um, The Lord gave me a vision for a nightclub that we could use as like a way to reach the lost. And she started casting this vision. And I'm like, this lady is incredible. And we have the same taste in music. And so I'm like keeping it to myself how much I like her, and I'm like, I'm going to fast and pray and see if this is the Lord. Well, meanwhile, she is fasting and praying because she had a dream about me before she met me. And when she saw me, she recognized me as the guy from her dreams. Thus, she's sitting there smiling at you. Well, I don't think it really connected until, when, when was it? The internship. Yeah, so it was like a month later when she, was, she got to see me up close you could say that I was the man of her dreams. <laughs> I have to say that every time I tell this story. Um, <laughs> so Okay, lots of good laughter for corniness. There you go. So she's fasting and praying. I'm fasting and praying. We're not telling each other. We're both fasting Monday through Wednesday for like six months. We did not tell each other. Every week we're fasting three days a week, and we did not tell each other. And so... The Lord, I had just started a 21-day fast where I was going to keep my mouth shut and just be quiet because if you ever do something like that, you realize most of the noise in your life is actually yourself. And uh, so I just started a 21-day fast. It's like day one, and the Lord's like, that's your wife. You can go get her after your fast. And so during that 21-day fast, I'm like sitting there going, that she's the one, and I can't talk to her until this fast is over. What was happening, though, is the Lord was showing me the longing of the bridegroom, yeah. knowing which one's mine, and cannot wait till the Father says, okay, it's time. Now you can talk to her. And that 21 days, I was just like sitting there crying in the prayer room going, Jesus, you want me so bad. Because it was letting me experience his love in a whole nother level. I didn't know what she was going to say. She was really good at not letting me know how much she liked me. So I didn't know if she was going to be like, yeah, that's awkward. Just want to be friends. I didn't know what she was going to say. And the Lord... Actually, it's been almost five years to the day. <laughs> I'm telling you. I'm serious. It's almost five years to the day when the Lord released me to talk to her. Um, it'll be this week. and uh, That's crazy now. Nine years to the day, seven years to the day, and five years to July's the day. July's a really good month for me. Come on. <laughs> it's a really good month. And uh, she weeps and begins to tell me the story, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Now, before I had even met her, the Lord said I was going to be married on February 22nd. I didn't know what year, um, but I looked at the calendars over the next few years, and I was like, well, if it's not this next year, then I guess I'm getting married on a Monday because um, I'm not going to wait another seven years. Um, and so uh, it turned out that we were married on February 22nd, 2009, and uh, that whole journey was incredible. We saved our first kiss for our wedding day. And... Um, So we got pregnant right away after that, and uh, that's what happens when you save your first kiss. And um, <laughs> that process was so incredible, that first nine months while she was pregnant, of just learning how to let her in on my battle. Because some people will think, well, if I'm addicted to porn, when I get married, now that, that's going to be done. No. There's an insatiable appetite in the flesh. And when you feed it long enough, you're training your body to have this large appetite that is just unrealistic for most women to meet. And so what the Lord was training me was to not expect her to 
fulfill the desires of the flesh, but to be that partner with the Lord to meet all my desires. He was allowing her to be a part of that, and he was using her to meet those desires in a godly way and letting her into the battle and just being honest with her and be like, okay, honey, um, honestly, I'm not really attracted to you today. I'm more attracted to men. Can you pray for me? Like, just, and she's so awesome. She, she's like, okay, that's not who you are, and she'll just pray for me. She's not scandalized. She's not, like, spending the next week in insecurity wondering why I'm talking to that guy. She's very secure, and that security and strength has lent me so much support. We, we get to that day that my baby comes. It was, I don't, I don't know how we survived that, four days. Um, four days of no sleep because she was in having contractions every 15 minutes for four days, and she had not slept for four, and then she had a push for two hours, and I saw a side of her I'd never seen before. I was like, I knew you were strong, but dang, that was, that was you're my new hero. And um, I'm holding, we're, we put, we're playing worship music in the hospital room, and we're both exhausted. I feel like I've been beaten with hockey sticks. Um, it was just... We're sore all over just from being tired and the whole journey of that. And I'm holding my daughter, and I just I start weeping, thinking about if I had given up the fight, I would not be experiencing that moment. And how many babies have been aborted because men did not fight? They didn't lean into the grace. How many women just gave up the fight because they're just tired of fighting because they let self-pity win? And I was just thinking, Lord, I'm so weak. I'm not the warrior I need to be. But somehow you got me to this point where I'm holding my child. And I don't deserve this. And then I just realized that homosexuality to me was going to be abortion outside of the womb. That it was going to abort my destiny. In Psalm 50, it talks about whom the Lord wants to come back for. And it says, gather to me my saints. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. It's not covenant with me by comfort. Covenant with me on their own terms. He's coming back for people who make an agreement through covenant with him. And it requires sacrifice on our part. And it's not, it's not a Christianity that enables us to walk according to the, the dictations of our flesh. And just in that moment I realized like, it's so worth the fight. Now I have, I have a daughter, I have two daughters now, who love Jesus and are growing up to love people and preach the gospel and pray for people and see people healed. And I would have missed that had I just let self-pity reign in that moment. Come on. Okay, Tiffany, you got to come up here. This is Tiffany. This is Nathaniel's wife. Now, you just need to go ahead and add anything you want to add right now. Because you have plenty to offer. <laughs> yeah. I think the, one of the most important things for me is just his ability to come to me in a weak moment and say, Honey, I'm struggling with these thoughts. Or last night I was... The, the devil hit me in my dreams with, you know, homosexual images or, or whatever. And just in that moment, in his weakness, he comes to me and he's like, can you pray for me? And I just love to be able to look at him and say, well, that's not who you are. In the name of Jesus, I command you to get your hands off him. 
Like, and that's it, you know? Like, we're a team. And once you, like he talked about bringing the light, bringing the darkness into light, like, that's huge. Like, even in a marriage where homosexuality isn't the, the issue, like, in a marriage, you have to bring the darkness into light, anything that you're struggling with, and, and fight together. Like, it's important, and that's what makes it stronger for your children, you know, and we just, we, our desire is to, to raise our children up to, to love those in homosexuality, and we want to see them set free and to really, really know the truth of who Jesus is and what he died for you, and that it's okay that you struggle. It's okay, it's okay, and we just want to love you where you are, and we want to see you know the truth, and, and that's just really our heart's desire is that they would come out and be separate, you know, and love Jesus with all their heart and not give in to this fleshly thing that says that you're a homosexual or that you love porn or, you know, or whatever because that's not who you are. That's not what the Scripture says about you. Take a season and sit before Jesus and know what he says about you and that it's okay that you struggle. Oh, so good. So, I want to, yeah, amen. So you're hitting, you're hitting the answer to the question that I'm about to ask. And so it may seem redundant, but I want to be explicit and plain. So somebody might hear this testimony and say, well, see, he still has... Uh, at times, these uh, impulses. So clearly, he's, he's not set free. And what I think I hear you saying is, that's the normative state for anybody who's leaning into righteousness, regardless of what the temptation is, especially if they've given themselves to a certain area of sin, whether it be a sexual kind of a thing with pornography. or Because as you're sitting there talking, I'm thinking... If a, a husband and wife go through the, the, uh, the tragedy of adultery and then they're restored, if the man ever has another thought or the, the, let's say the offending party ever has another thought of adultery, does that mean they're just an adulterer? That's just who they are forever? So sp- just speak again real cleanly into that because the, the, the argument would be if you ever have another homosexual thought, you're clearly still gay. I would say, well, does that mean the adulterer is clearly still gay or the fornicator is still, clearly still gay? So, but you answer it. it. It's really just in the, the torment of the moment. You can't let your battle define you. You can't let the thoughts that invade you. Like, for example, when I was three, when those first thoughts came into my head, no three-year-old should have thought the thoughts that I thought. Like, yeah, where did they come from? Where did they come from? I was not, again, I was not exposed to pornography. I was not molested. Th- those thoughts were, were input into my mind, spiritual input. And if, if we were suddenly all where we were supposed to be when we were saved, then Paul would have no need to say that we need to renew our minds. If what goes through our heads is, is our identity, God help us. All of us. Yeah, if we're defined by every thought that we have, if that's the definition over us, we're, we're toast. We're doomed. And so it's in that process and that that's battle that you have to determine what does the scripture say about me and not what does my flesh say about me, not what arouses me, not where, where do I find comfort in my flesh. Where, what does the, the scripture say about the new man? Why does Paul constantly talk in the epistles about putting on the new man? It's because it's somebody that we know not yet. It's somebody that is transcendent to our, 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 our existence right now and He's in Christ Jesus. She's in Christ Jesus. 
It's somebody that we have to put on. We have to learn how to walk like that person. It's a daily, it's a process. If we are suddenly, all of a sudden, perfectly redeemed when we say yes to Jesus, then there's no need for sanctification. There's no need for discipleship. There's no need, there's no need for any of those things. This is a journey we have to go on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, My brothers, I urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus that you all be of the same mind and the same conviction. There be no divisions among you. That you would all have the same understanding and the same conviction. There's a day coming where this gray is being removed and it's happening right now. People are saying that my story is a lie. I made it up. Um, and really what it comes down to is you have to make a decision on, it. well, for, in my case, I'm a stick that the Lord wants to hit the hornet's nest with. Um, and Billy's a stick that he wants to hit the hornet's nest with. I'm not trying to be a stick. I'm not either, but he picked you up. And, picked, and, uh, <laughs> and there, there's a time when the church will not have, well, it's okay to be gay and it's not okay to be gay. If The reason Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 1 is because James said, if we're double-minded, we're unstable in all our ways. The church can't say that being gay is okay and it's, and it's not okay. The, the church can't say, the Lord loves me and my sexuality, and then I cannot say, but the Lord said, this is not who you are, this is never my plan for you, and you can't be in covenant with me if you continue to walk in homosexuality. There, that reality cannot coexist. Okay, so that's, that's really what this coming down to is the Lord is removing the gray and you have to now choose. Do you believe what the scripture says? Are you going to stand in the conviction and the, and the plumb line of the scripture? Are you going to stand in your experience and say, but this is what my flesh says? So good. So, I, amen. So I, you know, and, and do you guys mind if we just take a few more minutes? Yeah. So in the dialogues that I'm having, and I, and I, and I talked with some very, I mean, just Really beautiful people, really educated, well-spoken, clear uh, people who are gay, and, and they have so many answers and so many thoughts and so much philosophy. But as I was, as I was beginning to just talk and dialogue through uh, some of these details, um, you know, the question always becomes truth. It comes back to yeah. truth. And I recognize that there, it's just what you're saying, and I'm just affirming this point. I want you just to speak anything you want to say about it, but... I'm recognizing that this is not about hetero or homo or, you know, whatever. This is about what do you define as truth? You know, if you're holding to a biblical worldview that says the scripture is, uh, it gives us literal truths that are supposed to govern and guide our lives according to the ways of God, if you are in that camp, automatically you have to agree that Adultery is a sin, fornication is a sin, homosexuality is a sin. And by virtue of making that step immediately, and I've had an articulately explain it to me, that I am now full of hate, I am a bigot, I am a racist. You know, I'm all these, hor- I'm the, I have one guy say, you're the worst kind of Christian possible. Simply because of my stance on truth. You know, they can tell me, you, you're a hater. I go, I have zero hate in my heart for you. I have much regard and actually, I really like you and love you. And, you know, I, I'm totally enjoying talking to you. Like, you and I could be real buds. I have no hate in my heart. But the, the, once you say, I'm holding to a standard of truth in this regard, you automatically, by virtue of the way the arguments are lining up, 
you automatically have to be the enemy. You have to be full of venom, as I was told I am, full of arsenic and poisonous words. Uh, the, The battle lines are drawn that way. And here's my point, church. Hear me. If this is where we are today, where are we going to be in 10 years? Where are we going to be in 25 years? There's got to be a fastening to truth that at, at a certain level, it's not, it's not that you disregard compassion or mercy because truth draws us to mercy and compassion. Yes. But there's got to be a fastening to truth that at a certain extent is going to cause you to take a few shots. Jesus spoke 100% of the truth 100% of the time and it cost him his life. Yes. Yeah. Why would we think it shall be any different for us? And I just, you know, to me, it really ends up, it's not gay or straight. It ends up coming down to what's truth. And say whatever you want to say about that. Yeah, I mean, you've studied the cross. You've got such a depth of rich, you know, biblical stuff in you. I mean. It comes down to truth is a man. Yeah. It's not relevant according to our circumstances. It's objective. Um, the, the issue is when you hear, and, and when I've heard homosexuals um, immediately get defensive it's the first tactic is they get defensive and they begin to point it back at what you're saying about us. What are you saying about us? What are you saying about us? Us, me. What are you saying about me? What Christians who stand, take that biblical worldview are saying, it's not about me or us. It's about him. It's about the truth of the word. I, Billy and I are not defending our own opinion we're holding to the, the opinion of him, the, the truth, the man truth. And so you'll notice there's, there's, that is the huge difference. It's the issue of this is their camp. They make it about them. They make it about them as a, a whole or individually. It's never about the scriptural foundation. It's never about the plumb line. It's always about we're making some statement about them. But when we are speaking, we're speaking on behalf of the man truth. And so it's subtle, but those are the two different camps. I hope that made sense. Yeah, Jesus is the truth, and we're aligning with Jesus. And from there, the battle lines get drawn. Beloved, do you see where this is going? It's it's really the battle lines getting drawn on are you standing for Jesus or are you not? This is just one of the issues that's being pushed to the surface. There's many issues that are being pushed to the surface. This is one of them that's going to take out the the gray area. Tiffany, share anything you want to share. You're just so awesome. Add anything you want to add. Prophesy over everybody, cast out the devil. What what are you going to do? (laughs) Um, No, I just wanted to agree with what y'all are saying because it's not—it's not about Billy. It's not about Nathaniel being delivered. It's not about the homosexual. And what are you saying about me? It is about Jesus. Like Billy takes himself out of the equation, and Nathaniel takes himself out of the equation. It's—it's Jesus. Like I'm—I'm not worried about me, and I'm not worried about you as a homosexual. I'm worried about what Jesus says, and that's what I stand for. So I, I just wanted to say a yes and amen to that. And admonish, you guys, add the last word, admonish us, charge us, rebuke us, instruct us, call people to freedom. Say whatever you want to say. I just want to give you whatever you want, what's on your heart. Well, I, I think mostly in regards to the homosexual community, like, I just charge you to love them. To just, just love them and, and don't be, like, I guess... Like, when I say love them, encourage them in the truth. But here, here's what I've learned. If you listen to them, you can find out who they are outside of homosexuality. 
So giving them a chance to just share their hearts and, and encouraging them and just being so God is saying you're an artist, you know, or, or whatever you can call out because that's they're, a lot of them, not, not all of them, they're longing to be known, you know, and, and you want to know them aside from them being effeminate or homosexual or whatever. You just, you want to love them through God's eyes instead of thinking, oh, well, he's a homosexual. He's all, you know, we're not going to speak to him or, or we're going to say you're in sin, you know, or whatever, though it is valid that they know that they're in sin, but loving them and calling them who they are is what's important and what's going to give them strength to come out. It's great. And I'll just add to that. Um, the church, ha- there has to be a safe place for them to come. I've been praying for the homosexual community for years, and whenever I pray, the Lord's like, pray for them to have a place to go to. There has to be congregations where people who are cross-dressers, people who are transgender, people who have gone through the surgery and are now a different gender, they need a safe place to go. Without weird looks, without fear, those people need to be so secure that God has them in their family that, and that God can use them, that they can minister the love of God without anything going on here getting in the way. No filter about what have they been through or no weird looks. A safe place. There has to be safe places in the city and every city of the U.S. If God is going to send revival to the homosexual community, Absolutely. there has to be safe places. Absolutely. And in that, we also have to understand that, and I'm just going to be frank with this, the Jezebel spirit is behind a lot of the homosexual gay pride activism and movement. The Jezebel spirit that wants to kill the prophets, that wants to emasculate men, that that spirit cannot be cast down by people who have agreed with her in any measure. You cannot have your hand a little bit in the Jezebel pool and then tell her to get out of somebody. You've got to live a life of consecration. You cannot set wickedness before your eyes. Jezebel was a violent, angry woman. And if you're setting violent movies before your eyes, in Proverbs 6, the Lord says, I hate violence. I hate hands that shed innocent blood. And if we put $18 to go see that movie in the theater, how are we going to have authority to talk to somebody who's under the spirit that's under her control? And so what we have to do is really set, take this time to just make a decision. Am I going to be part of the, the help of the, the cause that's going to bring freedom or am I part of the problem? Am I, am I helping the Jezebel spirit get a stronghold over this generation? Am I putting my dollar to vote towards what she's putting out through Hollywood? Am I putting my dollar towards what she's putting out through iTunes? We have to make a decision with our finances, with our time, what we're putting before our eyes, what we're putting before our ears. We cannot have any finger hold into what she's doing. We cannot let her in our house at all if we are going to be able to cast her out of people and bring healing to people who are under control. When you look at JQ, he rides in. He's not under her control. She's got her makeup on. It says she's like trying to get herself all pretty. She pokes her head out the window trying to seduce him as she does. And Jehu doesn't even address her. He's like, who is with me? And these eunuchs who've been emasculated and under her control, are now making a decision. They look out the window, and they're like, we're with you. And he's like, great, throw her down. I'm not even going to talk to her. 
And because he was not under control, he had authority to call those eunuchs to cast her down, and then he trampled her under his feet. And that is what this generation is going to have to do. You cannot look at her. You cannot let her seductive ways entice you at all. You have to be totally free from her so that you have the authority, to, like Jehu, to call those under her control to cast her down, and then you can trample under her. But we can't be haughty. We can't be audacious and think, well, I haven't watched a dirty movie in a year, so I got the authority. You have to be sent by God. There was prophecies concerning Jehu about her death. We have to be careful about walking in his timing and walking in obedience to the Lord. We can't be haughty because she is violent. I mean, look at how many threats she made. She killed the prophets of the Lord and she threatened Elijah. This is a violent spirit. That's why I said it's like hitting a hornet's nest. This is a violent spirit. It's angry. She was an angry, violent, immoral, sexually lustful woman. And that spirit is pervading every aspect of our society. We have got to consecrate ourselves if we're going to have any authority. And I know that is, that is the foundation that was built in me here. That is one thing that I so appreciate about Billy's leadership. is that He constantly took me to the scriptures and showed me what the Bible says about a godly lifestyle. And all I can find now is that you do not have to be part of society and put on a little bit of the aspect of the, of the relevant culture so you can be relevant to people. It's actually, you're relevant because you've gotten in the secret place and you've gotten something from God that now sets people free from the spirit of the age. And so I want to encourage you, even put your dollar towards funding missionaries here. I'm not here anymore, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> I'm not a missionary here anymore, and I can say, if you're funding missionaries here, you're, you're changing lives. You're raising up world changers, when you're putting your dollar towards people who are living for consecration and living for holiness, who are fasting and praying and reading the word, this is the next generation that's coming up are going to be the ones who are set apart. Even if it's just the few, God can deliver with the few. He doesn't need the many. So put your dollar towards the, the, the few right now. Oh, that's awesome, man.